Let us turn to God's word now for our instruction. We turn to the book of 2 Samuel and the chapter 12. The book of 2 Samuel and the chapter 12. And we read from verse 1 through to the verse 25. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 to the verse 25. This is the word of God. Let us come and hear the word of the living God. The Lord truly give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his precious word this Lord's Day morning. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. It grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, The man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul and gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because... By this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 
the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David. And it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in, and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him, to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and when he required, they sent bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went in unto her, and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of God. The word of Almighty God. And may the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his most holy and fallible, inerrant and sacred word. All to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never dying souls. Well, dear congregation, we... Turn now to that portion of Holy Scripture that I read to you in your hearing, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And once again, in complete dependence upon the Lord for any blessing this morning, may the Lord grant that blessing that maketh the soul rich and addeth no sorrows. You remember last time in the chapter 11, we saw David's terrible, unspeakable sin, not only in adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, but also then in the murder of Uriah the Hittite. David, instead of watching his men out in the battlefields, he was a man that became filled with lust. We know that this really started long before that. Remember how David started to have many wives. And that was wrong. That was never, ever sanctioned by God. 
Polygamy is never sanctioned by God. You only have to read Genesis chapter 2. The two shall be one flesh. The husband and wife are joined together and they become, as it were, one body. But David was a man that was already defiled with many wives. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised that he ended up committing adultery in the end. We shouldn't be surprised at David's sin. It's wrong. He wasn't walking in the ways of God. And the devil makes work for idle hands, doesn't he? David should have been keeping his eye on his men. And remember how they fought the Ammonites and were not meant to. God said, don't touch them. David wasn't there supervising and watching over Joab. David was in Zion, another name for Jerusalem. He was at ease in Zion. And he was sinning. Sinning on in the sin that he had begun. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that sin can never have enough. Never have enough. Sin must be mortified. In these are mortal bodies. Unless it does, sin will only get greater and greater in our hearts and in our lives. And in this case, it was murder. Who would have thought that lust will end up in murder? And it did. And it comes at a great, great, great cost in David's life. We have read of the awful consequences that David now has to face. Now it seems that for a while, all has been forgotten. He marries Bathsheba. She comes to live with him. She is with child and then the child is born. And we are reminded in the closing of the chapter 11, the verse 27, it says, this is after the morning, and when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord never forgot. While David may, it seems, have forgotten for many months now, the Lord has not forgotten. And we're reminded, aren't we, that adultery is a wicked thing. Remember what the Lord said Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. There is to be no sexual relation between people outside of marriage. The Bible is absolutely clear on this matter. And in the case of somebody else's marriage, What are the consequences? Death. The adulterer is to be put to death. This is a heinous sin. And uh, deserving the same penalty as murder. David has done both here. Adultery is a terrible thing. This is why Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes, then why should I think upon a maid? Paul said... Flee fornication. We must. Sexual intimacy is only for marriage between husband and wife. And we're to keep the bed undefiled. The word of God strictly forbids any sexual relationship outside of marriage. 
Some people say, but we love each other. Well, then get married. That's all I have to say. That's what the Bible says, get married. You love each other, get married. If you have children and you're not married, doesn't say many good things to them, does it? Are you committed to each other? Why don't you get married? Today, people have all kinds of things, prenuptial agreements. They're looking to the negative straight away, aren't they? Well, you marry, and you marry only in the Lord. It's sad for a child to grow up in a home where there's no commitment. It's a very common thing today. Now, in this passage here, Second Samuel 12, the Lord deals with David. And it's severe. A child will die. And David's house will suffer serious consequences. We read of this child dying. Now, I know of a particular case, and I've known this person for many years. We say we know this person, my wife and I. A young girl who murdered her baby, had an abortion many, many years ago. Well, she was married. Now she can't have children. Haunts the mind, doesn't it? Haunts the heart. It's a, ter- it's a serious thing. She can't have children now. Well, the Lord might be merciful, but you know, there's always consequences. Always consequences. Remember what the Lord says, beware, your sin will find you out. Don't be fooled. Your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 23. Now, David's sin may not have been known by everybody, but it seems by and by it will be exposed to all. And it is. Well, we have the Psalm 51, which we didn't sing, and we'll sing another time. David confesses iniquity, and the iniquity is is plain and clear to everyone here. Nathan knows about it. The Lord knows about it. Let us hate all sin, not just those big and open sins. Remember what I said last time. If we just hate open sin, then we don't hate sin at all. We just hate being exposed at our sin. And that shows hypocrisy. We should hate sin because God hates all manner of sin. He who does not hate sin doesn't love God. We've got to hate sin. Now, as we come to chapter 12 here, Nathan the prophet comes to David. And there are a number of lessons for us to learn, important lessons. I want us to learn how, first of all, how Nathan deals with David. Nathan is a very wise man. In fact, we know that David has a number of sons. Some of them are born in Jerusalem, and David names one of his sons Nathan. And that, many suggest, is probably because he thought so highly of Nathan. Nathan, as we know from 2 Samuel 7, is a prophet. And he comes to David now. And there are lessons for us to learn. First of all, we come to this parable of self-condemnation. It is a parable of self-condemnation. David actually condemns himself because he condemns this man in the parable. 
And Nathan says, David, thou art the man. You're the very man in this parable. Now the Lord also gave parables. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave parables. Remember the wicked vine dresses. And the Pharisees were greatly troubled. Remember, they knew that the parable was about them. But they never repented. The difference is God's people always repent. When the Lord comes with his word, it pricks the heart. And those who are the Lord's confess their sins. And they forsake them. David forsook his sin. We must forsake sin. Now, I want you to notice here, first of all, Nathan's faithfulness. This would not have been easy, friends. Nathan is going to the great king, now the greatest king in all the earth. How is he going to tackle this? How is he going to deal with this? Well, we know the Lord sends him. And you know, sometimes we feel something is so strong, something has been done that is wrong, and we cannot but help go because God has been offended. God has been grieved. And the Lord here sends Nathan to David. It's perhaps been several months, some suggest, and perhaps many have forgotten, maybe even David. He's learned to silence his conscience against this. But David, what has he done? He has sinned against God. He has sinned against his own body. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against Bathsheba. And this is innocent blood that has been spilt upon the earth. Remember the first murder that took place. Remember how the Lord said to Cain, Thy brother's blood crieth from the ground. The whole ground, the whole place was defiled because of innocent blood. And now we could say Israel and the people, God is not going to favor them. It's the same in a church if sin goes unchallenged. We have been studying in our midweek series of how churches were responsible. The church of Thyatira, the Lord said, I have this against thee. They were tolerating. They were suffering that woman Jezebel. Now, when wrong is wrong and the Lord has been grieved, we must address sin. Now, Nathan is coming to David, and uh, this is of the commandment of the Lord as well. And you see, here Nathan is best placed to confront David with his sin. Now, I want us to just think for a moment as we come to Nathan here coming to David. How are we, first of all, to deal with others that sin against us? Well, if you turn with me just briefly there, Matthew 18, we're looking at it with the children this morning. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. So we got this clear, just the two of us. You go and you tell the problem to your brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. 
Now, if the person doesn't hear you, you don't just say, well, that's it. Neither do you then go around gossiping and tell everybody, well, I've spoken to such and such a person and they won't hear me. You are not doing the right thing. What you need to do in this particular case here is if somebody has sinned against you, you go and you take somebody else with you. Maybe not just one, but two. And let me say this. You may not even be right. You may be accusing somebody of something that is wrong, and you may not even be right. You may be in the wrong. And that's one of the reasons why you take somebody with you, or other people with you, so that the matter can be established. Now, if it's clear when you take those friends with you and you address this brother that has sinned against you, if they agree with you, hear me, if they agree with you, and this man still refuses to repent, you go and tell the church. That's why it's important to belong to a church. Because you can't deal with problems outside of the church. And if he will not hear the church, then he must be considered a heathen. But the order is important. You see, many people stop at taking a problem to somebody, and then they think they've got the right to spread all kinds of rumors and gossip. Whereas that person may not have even agreed with you, And they may even be in the right, or you might be in the right, but the point is you've got to involve others. That is the right way of dealing with it. But here David, David here confesses immediately before Nathan. And Nathan is doing the right thing. And Nathan wins his brother David. Now there's no doubt in our minds that Nathan loved David. But he loved God more, didn't he? And that's only right. That we love God supremely. That we love God before other people. That we love the truth. That is what is at stake. Because you see, if you don't love the truth, and perhaps you're wrong, you're trying to address somebody else, you're wrong, you're going to stand up on your hind legs in pride, aren't you? You've got to love God. And you've got to love the truth. You've got to have allegiance to the truth and allegiance to Christ, who is the truth, more than anything else, more than other people. Nathan feared the Lord. And Nathan did what is right. But Nathan, he not only confronted the problem, but he confronted the problem in the right way. In the right way. Now David, it seems that he had silenced his conscience for a long time. And murder he committed, adultery. How could he pray? You ask yourself that question. How could David rise up in the morning every day and pray and praise the Lord? Remember what we read in Psalm 66 verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That is, if I cherish sin in my heart... There's a break, isn't there, in fellowship with God. God won't hear you. You won't be blessed. 
You, you can go through the formality of praying. Oh, you, can, you can easily and even go to the prayer meetings. But the Lord won't hear you. There's a distance, isn't there? Now, we come to this self-condemning parable. And this is where we see the supreme, sublime wisdom of God worked in the heart and mind of Nathan. I want you to notice that Nathan doesn't deal with this problem head on. Yes, he goes to David, but he doesn't go like a bull in a china shop, does he? He goes with wisdom. He lets David condemn himself first, because why David's conscience has been somewhat subdued and silenced. He's silenced his own conscience now, perhaps, for months. And he's not even sensitive to his own sin. And you and I can be like that. We can be so aware of everybody else's sin, but not our own sin. I think it was Martin Luther said, you know, we see everybody else's sins before our eyes, but our own sins are behind our back. And that's often how we are, friends. And you just remember here, David had to confront no ordinary man. But David here is the great king. And he has to confront him with the greatest sin. Is there a greater sin than this, adultery and then murder? No. Now the key to all this is the wisdom that God gives Nathan. And the first thing I want you to notice is that Nathan puts off condemning David straight away. He does eventually get to the point, doesn't he? But he does so in a very tactful way. The parable is very simple, but it's very, very powerful. There are two men in the parable. There is the poor man, who is Uriah. And then there's the rich man, and that's David. The poor man has one ewe lamb. And it lives in the house. And it's like a daughter to him. It drinks out the cup. It sits with the children. It's like part of the family. It's cherished. It's loved. And that's all this poor man has. But the rich man, who is David, has many flocks. And you think about it. David has many wives. He has all of Israel. He has everything. But the poor man has nothing. But the rich man, he has a friend that comes to town. And what does he do? He dresses that ewe lamb. And the ewe lamb is eaten, killed, slayed by the rich man. Now, who is the ewe lamb? Bathsheba. You see, David is outraged. Let's just read the parable. We read, And he came unto him, that's Nathan, and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up, and it grew together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And they came a traveler unto the rich man, and 
he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man was come to him. Now this was unspeakably wicked, knowing that this poor man had nothing. And this, especially this little ewe lamb was so loved and cherished. And you think of it, Uriah had this beautiful wife, the wife of his youth. He loved her. He was a good man. He was faithful, faithful to Israel, faithful to David. Did David no harm? What is David? David's conscience is now awakened. And we read verse 5, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, David remembers the law of theft. You know what it is in Exodus 24 and 25. If a man stole an animal, he had to pay fourfold. I think they'd get a lot of thieves today out of the business of stealing. They'd be very poor, wouldn't they? That was the law. Zacchaeus knew the law. Luke 19, verse 8, that's why he said, if I've taken from anybody, I'll pay him fourfold. Luke 19, verse 18, he knew the law. But this was more than just taking a lamb. This was taking another man's wife, made in the image of God. You see, David saw, he said, this man had done so wickedly. David says this man has been so callous. This man must be put to death. And David knew, did he not? He knew the penalty for adultery was what? Death. And the penalty for murder was what? Death. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Man that takes another man's life should be put to death. Now you see, by way of analogy here, the parable is very clear. David stole the lamb that belonged to another man. Was he had plenty. He was a covetous man. And only then, does Nathan say, by the way, David, you're the man. Until then, his conscience was dead. He'd been silencing his conscience. Now, let me just say, there's a number of lessons to learn from this. Confrontation had to come. But it has to come at the right time. That's wisdom. There's some people that just start with a problem. Nathan doesn't just start with a problem. Nathan starts with the law of God. And by the way, the law of God is written on our hearts. Romans 2, 14 and 15. We know it's wrong to lie. We know it's wrong to commit adultery. We know it's wrong to murder. We know those things. But sometimes conscience, like David's, as it were, can be hardened. But what Nathan does is he, he arouses this conscience again and he makes David to see how wicked sin is. David saw this was wicked. And he doesn't, so what he, he doesn't do is he, he confronts 
David with truth. Doesn't he? Maybe in our own lives. I was just looking there at Matthew 18 and how we're to deal with problems in the church and problems with each other. And the common problem is people don't deal with problems that way. There are many areas of our lives where we've not been faithful. And we need to be confronted with what is right and what is wrong. Confrontation must begin with truth. If you don't have truth, you see, because sometimes people say, well, the truth applies to you, but it doesn't necessarily apply to me. But it does. God is not a respecter of persons, friends. If we have failed to do something we should have done, it is sin. Isn't it? And if we have done something we shouldn't have done, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter whether it's the king, it's sin. But Nathan is wise. There's some people that pride themselves in saying, you know, well, I'm a man who just likes to speak his mind. Well, you're a fool. Because sometimes it's not always wise just to confront. Because sometimes people, quite frankly, are dull in their conscience. And you've got to revive that conscience again. There's some people who just beat it around the bush as well. There's a, there's a flip side of things, who just beat things around the bush and never get to the, bo- to the point because they're cowards and they never confront. But there is a time to confront. Nathan does confront but he confronts at the right time. That's the point. Now again, I I ask this to you as I must ask to myself, are there people in our lives that maybe we feel have done wrong against us and we have not followed to the letter? And I mean to the letter. Matthew 18, 15 to 17 where you have actually gone and addressed a problem to somebody, and maybe they haven't heard you. And actually, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. And you haven't taken somebody else with you, two or three other people, and in a loving way try to deal with a problem. If you haven't done that, it's sin. And you need to confess. You need to repent. But if you have done that, And the person still hasn't. And those people have agreed with you. Have you then gone to stage three? Because if you haven't, it's sin. It's sin. You see, it takes discipline in the Christian life, doesn't it? To do the right thing. It's never easy. Confronting sin in our own hearts is never easy. And confronting sin in other people's lives is never easy either. But the Lord will give grace and the best outcome will always take place if we do what is right. The unbeliever, well, he'll just say, I'm not prepared to own up to my sin. 
And after all, what is sin anyway? Who are you lot, you self-righteous people? The Christian has to be honest. But we have to also be people of wisdom. Don't be somebody who takes pride in just confronting a problem head on. Sometimes you need, if, if something is so blatant, if somebody sins in front of you, it's clear and obvious. You say, well, why did you do that? It's for all to see. But if it's a questionable matter, you need to have wisdom. and You need to have tact. And you need to address from God's word. And you need to be patient. How patient Nathan was here. You see? And don't be a coward either. Many people are cowards. Nathan could have backed out of here. As so many would have. Trembling. What am I going to say? But you go, friends, in God's stead. And you go graciously. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. But you know, people very seldom do that. Very seldom is there a spirit of meekness. If there was, I think there wouldn't be half the amount of problems there are. If we were just gentle and meek, God help us. You can see the wisdom here and the grace of Nathan. But then we have God's judgment announced, verses 17, verse 7 to verse 14. Now remember, the Lord has sent Nathan. There's something particularly unique about him is he's a prophet. And he, he knew the future. The Lord had, had given him these things. Notice verse 7. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Notice, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. It's quite striking, isn't it? Do you remember when the Lord addressed Saul? In a very similar manner, isn't it? Didn't I make you king over Israel? Didn't I bless you with this? But Saul, you've disobeyed me. It's frighteningly the same. Isn't it? It's the same way in which he deals with him. Saul. But notice what the Lord says. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? This is, this is the bottom line. All of David's sin could be summed up in this. David, you have despised or you have lightly esteemed my commandments. David, I am not that important to you. What are the commandments? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, thy strength. The commandment of the Lord was not to do any of these things, but to obey the Lord. You see, the connection is just this. To despise the Lord is to think little of the Lord's commandments. We have the commandment 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The way you go about doing things for the Lord says a lot about your attitude to the Lord, doesn't it? You see, you can't make no mistake, friends. Whenever we sin, we despise the Lord. You hear that? Whenever we sin, you do something wrong, you think little of the Lord. You are despising the Lord. After all, you are living, you know, you claim to be under the watchful eye of God. So the way you speak says whether you love the Lord or not. Do you esteem him? Do you love him? Well, if you loved him, you wouldn't do certain things. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You cannot sin without despising the Lord. If you really believe God is, and he watches your every move, and your every thought, you cannot sin without disesteeming the Lord. Hear what I'm saying? You cannot sin without disesteeming the Lord. You don't esteem him. If you just go on, you think, well, the Lord doesn't notice. I can do this, I can do that. And I don't, frankly, care what the Lord thinks. And this is what is being, wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord. Now notice verse 10. And because thou hast despised me. God says to David, you have despised me. Who is it? It gives all the commandments in the word of God. God. Just as you have parents, children. The proof whether you love your parents is whether you honor them. Isn't it? So you cannot sin without disesteeming the Lord. And this is what David has done. It's not a slip of the tongue. Lust is against God. Murder is against God. All of these things, every sin is a demonstration that we don't think that much of God. Hear what I'm saying? And when we try to sort out problems in our own way, you say, well, I don't really think much about your way of sorting out problems, God. I'll quite frankly do it my way. And if you do it your way, shame will come on you. Because it shows you don't really have a loving heart after all. Now, the way the Lord speaks to David is frighteningly similar to the way he spoke to Saul. But remember, David is a saved man. And that makes all the difference. But let me say this in gratitude. and We read here how the Lord says, David, didn't I do this for you? Didn't I do that for you? Ingratitude heightens the guilt. To whom much has been given, much is required and should be required. Now, those who know a lot about God's word, so much more is required of you. God has loved you and shown you these things and shown you what he's like. More is required at your hand. Now, what things? Is David going to suffer? Well, at least four things here. But first of all, notice the sword shall not depart from David's house. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me. That is, David, you've thought little of me. 
And remember, that's what all this sin is about. You've thought little of the Lord, David, and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Now, the sword will never depart from David's house. We know at least three of David's sons saw great bloodshed. David, we know, has 17 sons, a lot of sons. And you notice how the Lord says in verse 9 that David slayed Uriah. Oh, it might have been somebody else's sword, but he said, no, David, you slew Uriah. He doesn't excuse David. He doesn't say, well, it was you indirectly. While David was many a mile away, David, thou art the man. Thou art the man. Not Joab, not the Ammonites, but you, David. The fact that David was at a distance, arranging everything, he was guilty. He slew Uriah. Secondly, David, because he sinned in secret, guess what? And he took this wife in secret. His wives are going to be taken openly and by people of his own house. He said, what do you mean? If you turn to 2 Samuel 16, we know that this happened under the rebellion of Absalom, his son. It's terrible. It's despicable. We know this son really grieved David's heart, but this is all part of the recompense and the chastisement of the Lord upon David. This where the Lord says, I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them to thy neighbor. Look at 2 Samuel 16, verse 22. And they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. These concubines were like wives. He was making a mockery of his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. See, God is true to his word. What David tried to do secretly, God is going to shame David now. Why? Because God's name has been dishonored and blasphemed, as you will notice, among the heathen. And God's name must be preserved. Because David did this secretly, Everybody is going to know that God is displeased with David. And God does not let things go lightly. Verse 12, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. It's a very solemn thing, isn't it? You see, here's the point. The Lord is going to vindicate his own name as the God of righteousness. That's what God is doing and going to do in David's life. I am a righteous God. A man cannot sin with impunity. There's always going to be a consequence. There's always going to be a cost. God says my name will be upheld. I will not let my name be dishonored amongst the heathen, even amongst Israel. 
And the Lord was going to let Israel know that he detested David's sin, that he has detested all that has gone on here. The Lord wants holiness and integrity. But amazingly, David is spared. What does Nathan say? Well, first of all, notice what David says. Verse 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's not simply said, I've sinned against Uriah, I've sinned against Bathsheba, I've sinned against Lord, but I have sinned against thee. We know that lament in Psalm 51. Against thee and thee alone have I sinned. David does not excuse his sin. David sees that ultimately the one he has sinned against is God. And you notice in that Psalm 51, it says, notice the, 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 the way in David says every time, my, my sin, my transgressions, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and so on. He just goes on. Everything is his fault. He owns up to everything. And sin is against God. He said, verse 4 of Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I... Do you realize that? We were talking earlier, weren't we, about sexual infidelity. It's only to be within the bounds of marriage. David has gone beyond that. And he's broken God's commandment, and it ended up in adultery. Not only did he sleep with another woman who was not his wife, but he committed murder against her husband. But ultimately, who is it against? It's against God. Because you and I are made in the image of God. You know, when we address people, either in the open air, and we speak about homosexuality, or same-sex marriage, or people living together, and who shouldn't be living together, and they're not married. It's sin against God. It's not just wrong, but it is sin against God. And that's simply the way we need to see all of our sin, isn't it? Any sin. You tell a lie, it's a sin against God. Now God forgives David here, but notice, And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now this is a unique case. Ordinarily, David should have been stoned to death. Nathan is the prophet. And Nathan has said, Thou shalt not die. Many people question, Well, David is the king, and the Jewish law demanded that the king be put to death or anybody be put to death. The adulterer and the adulteress should be stoned, put to death. But Nathan here, the prophet, says, and it's effectively on Nathan's head. Now, by the mercy of God, David's sin, notice, the Lord has put it away. Where has the Lord put it? He's put it on Christ. Some people bizarrely say, well, 
David's son, the son that dies here, dies because of David's sin. No, that is not what the scriptures teach. Some people say, well, are babies innocent? No, they're not. Let me show it to you. Let me prove it to you. You know that occasion where the Lord said to uh, Saul to slay all the Amalekite, even the infants. If infants are without sin, God would be what? Unjust to have them slain. Wouldn't he? David's son that dies here is a sinner. David's sin is not placed on his son. The scriptures do not teach, my friends. The children are born sinless. Hear me now. Because some people go bizarrely wrong here and suggest that children are born sinless. Infants are born sinless. No, they're not. First Samuel 15, 3, the Lord says to Saul by Samuel the prophet, Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling. You hear what I'm saying? There are those that teach, and I've heard it just recently, that infants are innocent. But David says, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin, I was conceived. Moreover, what does the Apostle Paul says, say? He says, by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all that have sinned. Why is the child going to die? Because it's a sinner. Like all of us. You see, it would be immoral. It would be unjust for God to slay the Amalekite infants as well as this child if they were sinless. Hear me, please. And I want to speak sensitively about this. God, however, has his elect. Doesn't he? We don't know who they are. I don't see a bunch of foreheads with a dot on them or a sign saying elect, 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 non-elect. The Lord knoweth them that are his, my friend. That's it. And we leave the rest with God. The Lord has his elect. Now David here says, you notice in the verse 23, but now he's dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Some believe that this is proof that all infants are elect. But we're not told that. And we cannot go beyond what the scriptures teach. But the Lord, it seems, either through Nathan or directly to David, and by the way, David was a prophet too, has given David assurance that David shall go to the child. The child shall not return. And this must have been a blessed comfort to David. You see this? 
Now let me just say this. Mortality does not happen to sinless people. You say, well, what about in the instance of Christ? Well, let me just, I'm so glad you've asked rhetorically. The scriptures say he was made sin for us. Isaiah the prophet says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him Christ, the iniquity of us all. That is all who are sheep and have gone astray. What does he say in verse 11? By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their sins. You see, God could not spare his son because he was bearing the sin of his people. Yes, he came into this world sinless, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And he alone can save. David's greatest son had to come into this world, my friends. You see, one is born. This son dies. And we note here that the child suffers for seven days. Seven days. My God would be unjust if this child were sinless. Wouldn't he? Would would God be just? But in the case of Christ, you see, one greater than Solomon would come into this world. But he would be the sin bearer. You see, after this child here is born Solomon. And we're told in this passage that he's called Solomon. That's what David and Bathsheba name him. But then... Nathan calls him Jedediah. That means beloved of the Lord. That's who Solomon was. He's called Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. But dear friends, remember that day, as we read in the New Testament, the voice of the Father coming down. This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. And my friends, he suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And that is how David is spared. You see that? God has not dealt with David according to his iniquities. And that's what David could cry in that 32nd Psalm. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul sets forth David in that showcase of God's grace. There with Abraham. Two men justified. Father Abraham and David. How were they made right? By the son that was to follow. You know, Bathsheba, despite all of David's sin, you can read her name 
in the New Testament. The Savior would come through that line. Through all David's folly, through all David's mistakes and his sin, blessed be God, the Savior Jesus Christ would come into this world. Isn't that wonderful? And the wonderful thing is, though, despite David's sin, God had obviously given him some assurance that he would see this child. Because God does his, have his elect. Let me just read from our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 10, paragraph 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And that gives me great hope, you know. Salvation does not depend, as Paul says, it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that has mercy. My friend, this gives you hope for the hardest child that you might have. Or the child that you think is completely beyond human reach. And of course, quite frankly, we're beyond all reach. But God in his mercy converts the soul. Takes them out of Adam. and Puts them into David's greater son. Jesus Christ. And there's our hope. It's amazing as we look at this. Close of the scene, we see how David was weeping and praying that God might spare his son for seven days. But God didn't spare him. But at the end, when the child dies, the men are amazed. David, why have you stopped weeping? Why have you stopped crying? Why are you eating, David? Well, because, as we read, I shall go to him. And that is the hope of everyone that has a hope in Jesus Christ. And if we believe on Jesus Christ, we have the same spirit as David. We confess our sins, don't we? When a brother or sister lovingly confronts us, say, I've sinned. God, have mercy on me through thy son. Friends, we're all sinners, aren't we? We're all lost apart from Jesus Christ. There's nobody that can take any pride here this, this morning in anything. We're all on the same level ground, aren't we? We're on Grounds of redemption in Jesus Christ. Amen.